You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, Creekside. So good to see you all. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad to have you with us this morning. My name is Jeff Bruce. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it is your very first time, Hey, thank you so much for joining us for worship. We'd love to give you a free gift, uh, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle, and that is our gift to you if it is your first time with us, and you can grab that at the info desk after the service, which is right out there. Uh, If you would like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there is a slip or should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Happy Veterans Day weekend, and hey, if you have served in the military or are active duty, thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for us and for our nation. We honor you. We appreciate you this morning. Thank you for joining us as well. I was thinking this week, you know, as we continue our series in James, you know, you don't really know how screwed up you are until someone gives you feedback. You ever notice that? I might sense that I have some character defect, but I don't know how defective I am until I see how that thing impacts the people around me. So for example, pre-marriage, I I knew I was selfish. I kind of knew I was selfish. And and I kind of knew that I was oblivious to other people, but then I, I got married. And then a few weeks after our wedding, I was a middle school director, and I had to take a bunch of middle school kids up to a camp, and so I had to depart with my new bride for a week, and um, so I left, and and during that week away, I called my wife once, and I remember driving home, and man, I was excited. I was excited because I knew my wife was going to be thrilled to see me, and I just imagined the parade she was preparing for me because I was coming home, and I remember coming up into our apartment, and I I saw her, and and she wasn't that excited. In fact, she seemed a little distant, and I I was like, honey, what in the world is going on? And she said, honey, you called me once, and I was shocked. I said, you're mad that I only called you once? Are you serious? Honey, I couldn't use my cell phone, and there was only one phone, and I only had like a three-hour window during the day to use that phone, and that phone was down a hill, and that hill was steep. I mean, this is unreasonable. Well, I learned in that conversation it wasn't unreasonable at all. It was a wake-up call to how oblivious I could be. Have you ever gotten a wake-up call? Occasionally, we need a wake-up call. We need something that sort of shocks our system. Often that will be our spouse or an intimate friend who can give us real impact on how our behavior impacts them. And to take this to a bigger perspective as believers, I think sometimes when we're thinking about sin, we actually don't consider it from God's perspective and how our behavior impacts him. According to Scripture, we live in the world and the world is hostile towards God. It's alienated towards God. In fact, the world generates values and priorities that will push us away from God, from the God of the Bible, so that 
we will just subconsciously ignore God, neglect God, not even consider God in our day-to-day lives. And James calls that friendship with the world in today's passage. We're like the frog in the kettle. We're, we're immersed in the world, in the world's values, and without even realizing it, we take on the values of the world, we ignore God, we dele- neglect God, we prioritize what the world prioritizes, we love what the world loves, and the temperature slowly turns up to boiling point. We don't even realize it, and all of a sudden, even as believers, boom, we are worldly. We, we've pushed God to the wayside of our lives, and so what we need is a wake-up call. We need cold water thrown on us every once in a while to go, wow, I am ignoring God in that area of my life. And ultimately what we need is God's perspective on sin and what he thinks about our behavior. And here's why. Until I see sin from God's perspective, I don't see sin rightly. I will never understand the severity of sin, the ugliness of sin, until I see it from God's perspective. And until I have that perspective, I won't see the bitterness of sin, and so I won't enjoy the sweetness of grace and see just how good God's love is for me. We are currently in this series on the New Testament letter of James, and as we've seen, James is all about pure, undivided devotion to Jesus. It's about learning to submit to his lordship in every area of of our lives, And as we saw at the end of chapter 1, James gives us these three tests, and we're going to keep going over these, three tests of true devotion. How do I know if I am pure, if I am undivided in my devotion to Jesus? James says it will be seen in the way I restrain my tongue, the way I remember the poor, and the way I resist the world. Now, he has gone on to unpack of those things. We've looked at the first two over the last few weeks. Today, we get to test number three and resisting worldly values. If Jesus is my Lord, my heart is his, and I am not captivated by the values of the world. In fact, I actively resist worldly values. James is writing to worldly Christians, people who said they were Christians and thought they were Christians, but who were acting in profoundly worldly ways. What did worldliness look like for James' hearers? Well, let's start at the end of the passage in James 4 today, and we'll look at the symptom, and then I want to work backwards, and then James will show us the root disease and then the cure. What did worldliness look like? Here's what James says at the end of the passage. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge he was able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Last week we saw that this church has drama. A lot of high drama people in this church because a lot of people want control. A lot of people want to be in charge, and there is fighting for power in the church. People resent each other. They are bitter, and James says here that they are judging each other. Now, there is a proper way for us to judge each other. We can evaluate each other's behavior on the basis of Scripture to see, is it the biblical way to act or isn't it? 
There's a kind of judging where we lovingly go and express our concern to someone about their behavior. James isn't talking about that kind of judging. James says they are speaking evil against each other, literally speaking against each other. So what's this church doing? Slander, character assassination, sowing division. But I want you to see that James diagnoses the deeper problem. Because these believers' conflict, it's not just with each other. Who is their ultimate conflict with? It's with God. They don't fundamentally have issues with each other. They have an issue with God. He says that when you slander other believers, you actually speak against God's law and act as judge over it. How? Well, when you speak that way, you choose to ignore God's law. And particularly, God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's interesting, in Leviticus 19... 18, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what he says two verses before that? Don't slander. Don't slander. So when you speak of others in a way that you would never want them to speak of you, what are you doing? You're setting aside God's law. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself, and here's what you're saying to God. God, I like your law, sort of. I like some parts of it, but the parts I don't like, I'm not going to keep. What are you doing? You're making yourself judge over God's law. That's what James says here. And he goes on to say there's only one judge, only one lawgiver, right? So, so this position is taken. There's no vacancy for cosmic judge of the universe. But when we act like this, who are we trying to be like? God. We're trying to determine what law should be. And when I discount people, I deride people, I act as if I can determine who they are, what they are. I'm playing God. And that gets to the disease. The symptom is slander. The deeper issue here is worldliness. Worldliness. Worldliness is simply a view of the world that doesn't take God into account. That's worldliness. It's being oblivious or hostile to God's will and God's Ways. Remember back in chapter 3 last week, we said that the, the wisdom from below that's not from God, James said it's earthly, earthbound, doesn't take God's perspective into consideration. These are worldly Christians that need a wake-up call because they're not taking God into account. We need a wake-up call sometimes. There's areas of our life where we make concessions to sin. We need something that's not gentle, something that's going to wake us up. A splash of cold water on the face. We all need that. So here's the wake-up call. Sorry if it's not pleasant, okay? It wasn't pleasant for me studying for this passage, so we're all in it together. Worldliness. How can I tell if I'm worldly, if I'm not taking God into account? Second, this is the heart of it. How bad is it? How bad is it from God's perspective? What does he think about this? And then third, What does it look like for me to respond and repent? How can I tell? How bad? How should I respond? That's where we're going. Let's pray first and ask God for his help this morning. And God, we pray because uh, we cannot see the sinfulness of our sin until you show it to us. And, And only by a miracle of your spirit can we be sensitized to to the wickedness of our own sin, to the bitterness of our sin. So would we see that it is bitter so that we can see, Jesus, how sweet your grace is. 
and turn to you. And we ask it for your sake. Amen. How can I tell if I'm becoming worldly? How can I tell if I'm starting to live with no regard for God in an area of my life? James gives three great tests here. And it's good for preaching because they all end in S, okay? So covetousness, prayerlessness, selfishness. Covetousness, prayerlessness, selfishness. This is the root issue of worldliness. It actually all ended with ness, not just S. Works even better. Covetousness. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war Within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says here that the reason there's a war without is why? There's a war within. By the way, that's helpful to remember whenever you're in conflict, there's always three wars going on. There's the war between you and the person. There's the internal war that you're fighting. There's the internal war they are fighting. That's why it's so hard to resolve conflict. You've got to resolve three conflicts to resolve any one conflict. This is a church in conflict. And James says, ultimately, the reason you're at war with each other is because you're at war within yourself. James is using military language here. He's talking about quarrels. That, that word could also be military campaign. The campaigns, the wars we keep fighting with one another. And then fights, you can think of those as the skirmishes, the battles that accent the war. Why do we carry out these campaigns against each other? Because James says there's a civil war inside us and in the members of our body. Christians are new people with a new spirit living in this old, sin-ravaged body, and so we've always got two sets of desires waging war within us, right? There's the desires of the spirit to do what God wants. There's the desires of the flesh that do what we want. And like Paul says in Galatians 5, they do what? They wage war. There's what God wants, and there's always something in us fighting against that that is what we want. And ultimately, we're divided against each other because we're divided people. And that brings us back to the theme of James. We're double-minded. Part of us wants what God wants. Part of us wants our own way. And we can't decide which desire to act on if we're going to be selfish or selfless in these situations. That's, that's what's going on, and now James clarifies the root problem in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. J James is saying this, that, that your flesh, it, it makes you go into a crazy cycle in your life. So that there is this this desire for satisfaction and your fleshly desire can never obtain it no matter how hard you try. You see, apart from Christ, we have to create our own gods. That's what our flesh does. It, it creates false gods, things we hope will satisfy us, and that's the essence of sin. That's the essence of worldliness that we don't think God will satisfy us, so we create gods. Sin is turning a good desire into a God desire. This thing, I have to have it. And then it becomes a destructive desire. And you want something so bad that you will do anything to have it. And whatever that God is, you've got to have it and you will step over other people to get it. Right? Because it's your God. Regardless of the collateral damage. 
And James says that's at the root of why you are mistreating each other. He says you're murdering each other. I don't think this church is full of first-degree murderers, okay? That's a metaphor. This passage is metaphorical, right? There's wars, there's battles. James will call all of us adulterous people. He's not talking about literal adultery. Here, when he says murder, he's not talking about literal murder. He's saying the way that we will demean and denigrate each other when we're in fights. If I have to be right, I have to be first, I have to be acknowledged, I have to get what I want, and you're in the way, that's a problem, isn't it? You're going to get run over. That's what's happening in the church. Everyone's grabbing for power, they're slandering, they're mistreating, there's a lot of dying going on. There's a lot of hills to die on. Does that make sense? So, covetousness, this thing where I have to get what I want at all costs, is at the root of the conflict. This is waging war, and people are collateral damage. This is the first sign of worldliness in us, is whatever good thing I am making a God thing and have to get it. The reality is the flesh is never satisfied. The world apart from God is never satisfied. The flesh always says what? There's one word, more. More. And no matter how much you get, you always want more. More. It's amazing to think about this. Like, okay, Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's the CEO of Facebook. Do you know how much he's worth? A gazillion. He's a gazillionaire. $120 billion. Okay, fifth richest person in the world. Like, he can have any thing, physical thing he wants. And there's something amazing about a guy worth $120 billion creating, you've heard about the metaverse, Right? Like this new digital interface where you can just walk around and like you're living in a digital world that it overlaps with the physical world so that like you can get what? Like you can present yourself however you want to the world. You're not confined by your physical body and you can be everywhere at the same time and you can sort of be in control of everything and get what you want at all times. Like someone with $120 billion really wants that kind of world. And like maybe the metaverse will be great. Who knows? But at some level, doesn't that say that no matter how much stuff you have and no matter how much power you attain, you always want a reality that's just beyond your grasp? A little more satisfaction, a little more pleasure, a little more titillation, a little more control, that's worldliness. Because whatever you put your weight on that isn't God is an infinite vacuum that sucks and sucks and sucks you dry. And ultimately, if you put all your weight on that thing, it becomes a miserable thing that makes you miserable, right? So if you worship money, you can't enjoy money anywhere. You just need more of it to be okay, to be secure, to be significant. If you put all of your weight on your kids doing well, right, you'll be miserable with your kids because they're your God. And if they're not doing well, you're not doing well. If you put all your weight on some romantic partner, good luck. They're going to be a lousy God. So the first sign of worldliness here is what consumes me? What desire consumes me? What do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to bed thinking about? What are you most anxious about and coveting? That's the first sign of worldliness because you're looking for a God that isn't God. So we make gods out of the things of the world. That's worldliness that we look to stuff for significant security instead of looking to God. Here's what makes it even worse is prayerlessness. 
We seek to satisfy desires in our own way. Second, we don't ask God to meet our desires. It's the next sign of worldliness is prayerlessness. Look what, look what James goes on to say. You do not have because why? You do not ask. Simple. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? You have a good father in heaven. He wants to give you what? Good gifts. He wants to satisfy your desires. God's not withholding. He's not this cosmic killjoy who's just like, let me make them suffer as much as possible. No. He's saying, no, I have good gifts that I want to give my children, but they've got to learn to do what? Ask, right? Kids are good at asking. Repeatedly, daddy, 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 all day, right? And in one way, that's how we should approach God, that you have what I need. I'm going to ask you for it. And that's why Jesus says in the same passage, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, be persistent, keep going to God. Why? Because it demonstrates that you believe that who can satisfy your desires ultimately? It's God. God, that there is a goodness and a security and a provision and a satisfaction that only comes from you, so I'm just going to keep knocking and asking, Dad, 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 I trust you. And so it's not just that we want things too much, it's that we go about getting them in the wrong way, and that's the next sign of worldliness. God knows we want good things. What does he say? Ask. Just ask. And so if I'm prayerless, what does it mean? That I'm worldly that I'm not even taking God into perspective in the way that I am acting, right? So think, what is something in my life that I want but I don't ask God for? What do I just go about in my own way, right? I mean, this is one great thing to remember if you're in conflict with someone is you got to start praying for the person first, right? If you're angry about the way your spouse treats you, are you persistently praying for God to work on them? Be working on you. If you're not, then you're just taking matters into your own hands. Same with your relationship with a coworker or a kid or whatever. If you're not praying for it, ultimately I think that it's on me to get what I want in this and not on God. So, covetousness, prayerlessness, selfishness. Selfishness. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says, even when you do ask, your motives are what? Corrupted. There is, a, there is no limit on what we can pray. We can ask God for anything. But if we are praying from a place that purely views God as a means to the end of getting what we want, guess what? God says, pause, hold on. Right? These people, they are asking God, it looks like here, for money. Why? So they can spend it on what? Their own passions. Do you think God's going to answer that prayer? Dear God, give me more money so I can get more of what we want. No. Right? I mean, if I'm mismanaging the money I already have, why would God say, sure, I'll give you more of that to mismanage and ruin your life with? Sometimes when we are motivated purely by self-advancement or self-interest, then God just becomes a means to the end, right? It's actually that there's some other God, something we want most, and now God, you're the genie, now just give me that thing. That's the kind of prayer. And, and sometimes God resists us in prayer or says no because our motives aren't right. Let me give you an example, right? For years, you know what I prayed for? A bigger church. Oh God, make our church big. 
Is a bigger church a bad thing? No. Could that be an incredibly selfish prayer? Yes. Because a big church would make me feel big and important. And I'd be able to go. And I'd be able to look at other pastors and go, you should, you should go to a seminar by me. I can help you. It's like you're struggling. At some level, that was in there. Is that I couldn't be okay unless God gave me a bigger church. That's not the kind of prayer he's going to answer. Because that wouldn't be a benefit to me and it wouldn't be of glory to him. Do you see how that makes sense? So the next question to ask is, is when you are going to God, is it just you getting what you want or is it about God's reputation being known? And is it about you growing and becoming more Christ-like? See, worldliness views God, if it views him as all, as just a means to an end. So, so you see that? That's how worldliness crops up in our minds. Covetousness, over-desire for things, prayerlessness, we won't talk to God about our wants because we don't think he'll satisfy us. And ultimately, just selfishness, that we just use God. So that's, that's sort of endemic to the human condition, it is. Here's the question, though. Why is it so bad? Here's another way of putting it. Why does that offend God so much when we do that? And here's the answer biblically. Because God is not just our creator, not just our judge, not just our father. Do you know who else he is? He is our spouse. And when you understand that you are in a marriage covenant with God, you will begin to see sin differently. Listen to what James says. Here's the cold water. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the the strongest language used against God's people in the New Testament. Think about how James has been talking to the believers before this. Beloved, dear brothers and sisters. And then in this passage, he says, you adulterers. Sinners, he says. The only time in the New Testament that God's people referred to as sinners. He says, you double-minded. What is James doing here? He is hearkening back to the prophets in the Old Testament. And he is getting prophetic with God's people to wake them up to just the seriousness of their situation. You you read through prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea. How did they get God's attention? How did they get the people of God's attention? They said, when you trust in false gods, what are you doing? You are whoring after them. You are committing spiritual adultery. Why? Because God's people are in a covenant relationship with him, and that covenant is often compared to a marital covenant. And so sin, idolatry, is desiring something other than God to meet your needs. It is spiritual adultery, and that's what Israel did throughout the Old Testament, right? They would say, God, we love you most among all the gods, You're the best, God. It's just there's other gods, too, that can help meet our needs, right? So, Yahweh, you're you're best, but gosh, when there's a a drought, we'll pray to you and we'll pray to Baal. 
for rain. When our, our livestock are infertile, we'll, we'll ask you, but we'll also, we got a hedge, we'll ask Asheroth too to meet our needs. And this is what God severely rebukes his people for, and God doesn't change, and God's covenant with us is still a marital covenant. We are what? The bride of who? Christ. That's who we are. And, and when we turn in God-dishonoring ways to other things to meet our desires, James calls that friendship with the world. And in the ancient world, friendship was a lot more serious than it is today. A friend was someone you had a lifelong pact with. To be a, a friend meant that your deepest loyalty and sympathy was with that person. And so you are aligning yourself with them. And, and you see James only gives two options here. You can either be married to the values and priorities of the world or married to who? God. These are mutually exclusive. You can only be married to one person at a time, James is saying. And either your deepest loyalties are to God, forsaking all others, or else you are married to the world. There is no middle ground. It is either enmity with the world and friendship with God or friendship with the world and enmity with God. That's it. Binary choices and, and marriage. And that image really helps us to see just how clear cut the lines are. Because in a marital covenant, there's lines, aren't there? There's really clear boundaries. There's not a mushy middle on some things. It's not that complicated. For instance, my wife and I disagree on, on, on quite a few things. And, and actually, the older you get in, in marriage, the, the more you are clear on what you disagree on, right? Because you, you figure out how to resolve everything else. And there's a few lingering things where you just disagree. You just don't see it the same way. And one thing that we disagree on is how to make the bed. <laughs> and she makes it one way, and I, I make it the right way. And, um, and so I make the bed, um, and she's fine with that. We've kind of compromised on that, right? We disagree on how to make the bed. You know what we don't disagree on? Who the bed is for. Just two. Period. There's no, there's no ambiguity there. That, that is it, period. It is exclusive. And what James is saying here is when we try to live in fellowship with God while loving the world's values and desiring what the world likes, it's like sleeping next to your spouse and fantasizing about someone else. And the reality has gone out of the relationship. That's how God views our love affair with the values of the world. He is not indifferent in fact, he is zealous and angry for our faithfulness. And that's what James goes on to say. Are you just, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is the most Difficult passage to understand in James because it's not clear what passage James is quoting from. He's clearly trying to quote from the Old Testament, but there's no Old Testament passage that says what James says right there. There isn't. Nothing even close, okay? And so I've given you my translation, okay? The, the, the JB translation, okay? Um, because I think this helps to clarify. Here's what I think James is doing. 
He's referring to a passage that says, that communicates the idea that God yearns for us and, extending the quotation out to the middle of verse 6, he's saying, but gives more grace. Now, what's James doing there? I think he is paraphrasing the passage that he immediately goes on to quote, which is from Proverbs 3. He's saying, don't you know that what the Scripture says about God's longing for us, that he yearns jealously over the Spirit he put in you, and that he gives us grace. Therefore, it says, here's the verse I'm actually thinking of, God opposes who? The proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Here's what, here's what James is saying. That when we act in a worldly way, we are acting with pride. We are rejecting God's authority. We are stubborn, but it's a lot more personal than that. In fact, when we reject God, we're not just rejecting God the judge, but God who? The spouse. And that God who is opposed to us in that moment, as we walk away from him, he is zealous for our affection. He longs for us with jealousy. Do you know that one of God's attributes is jealousy? Not paranoid, insecure jealousy, but a zeal for exclusive relationship that is proper in a marital covenant. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am a jealous God. Jealousy, as J.I. Packer says, is God's zeal to preserve something that is supremely precious to him. It's God's zeal to preserve something that is precious to him. God treasures his marriage to us. We are his people, and he has an exclusive love for his people that belong to no one else. And he wants an exclusive love from us. It's a vowed love that what forsakes all others. Do you see how vile sin is to God and worldliness when you see it from this perspective? I heard one pastor say it this way. I mean, you know, imagine I said to my wife, honey, I love a lot of women but I love you the most. <laughs> Did she respond well to that? No. Because it's not just that she gets most love, it's that she gets a different kind of love. It's not just a quantitative distinction that there's a lot of love, but you get the most. It's a qualitative distinction. It means there's an intimacy there's a loyalty, there's an allegiance that belongs to you that does not belong to any other human being on the face of the earth. You see the difference? That's what God wants with us. It is not just, God, I love you most, but my love for you is qualitatively different. That ultimately, only what you say matters. And ultimately, only what you desire is what I will desire. And ultimately, your opinion is the only opinion that matters. It is forsaking all others. That's what God wants. Now, here's what's amazing about this. 
when you see how vile sin is, now do you see how amazing God's grace is that even in the midst of that, he gives what? More grace. More grace. That's, that's the story of the Bible is that God gets down on one knee to marry his people, right? And that's Mount Sinai, and he's on the altar, and he's ready to make a covenant. And what, is, what, what do his people do? They go make a calf. They're like, they're, they're committing adultery on the honeymoon. And yet God keeps pursuing his people and pursuing his people, and they keep going astray, and they keep going astray, and, they keep, and he keeps pursuing them. And he is perfect in his faithfulness, even as we are completely unfaithful. He continues to forsake all others in his pursuit of us while we forsake him again and again and again. And then he comes to us in Christ. And I love the image in Hosea 2 where God talks about wooing his people back and winning them and then purifying them to make the marriage complete so that, so that ultimately it's all grace. It's pardon and purifying power that God gives us so we can actually love him back the way that he asks to be loved. More grace. This is the good news of the gospel for you today. If you are beset with sin in an area where you have given in again and again and again, do you know what God offers you? More grace. And if you do it again today, guess what God offers you tomorrow morning? More grace. And you know what's amazing about God's grace? It isn't this sort of weary, grinded out, okay, I'll forgive you one more time kind of grace. In fact, every time he offers you grace, it's new grace. It's fresh grace. God is so gracious that he is always eager to restore fellowship with you. He is never standing aloof. He wants you back all the time because that's his greater grace. Here's what it means when we get to how should I respond. It means this, that the sin issues in our lives, ultimately, to turn from sin is to see that sin is God-word. It's not just that sin screws up your life and screws up other people's lives and make you miserable. It is wicked and offensive in God's eyes because you betrayed him. And so to turn from sin is to return to who? God. That's what repentance is, is turning to God. How do you do that? Well, James tells us, and this is how the passage ends. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. What will he do? He will exalt you. Exalt you. When we turn from God, we turn back to him and we do it humbly. Humbly. This is about humbling ourselves to God, right? Verse 6, God gives more grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves. So these commands are bracketed by what? Humility. What does it mean to humble yourself before God and turn to him? So glad you asked. That's verses 7 through 10. First, it means submitting yourself to God. We approach God in prayer, and submission is the essence of humility, isn't it? 
Because humility is not to view yourself too highly. Submission is putting yourself under authority. Submission is saying, God, you are the authority over my life. You see what's wrong with me, and I put myself under your authority. I want to do what you say. Second, as we submit to God, we will necessarily reject what? Sin. James says you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Whatever suggestions Satan has been making in your head, you say, and it's helpful to say it out loud, no. No. (laughs) Not happening. I resist that and I'm running from that thing. I'm fleeing from that thing. For me, often what that means to resist something, it means I've got to fast from something, even a good thing, to just break its controlling influence on my life, right? I love Twitter, and Twitter can make me an angry, anxious human being, and that's bad. And so I say, nope, I've got to fast from that thing. I'm going to resist that and just cut it out of my life so that it doesn't have a controlling influence on me, right? I've had to do that with sports at different points in my life. Not that sports are a bad thing, but there's a point where, like, if I'm mad at my family because the Niners lost, that means no, I'm, I got to cut myself off from reading sports blogs for a while. I'm going to fast from that thing and resist it because it's gotten too big in my life. You got to fast from things sometimes. Even good things because they're becoming too ultimate. You resist it, and what's the promise? Satan leaves you alone because he doesn't have authority over you. You resist him, you flee, you are running back to God. And that gets to the next step, which is confession. You draw near to God. And you might say, Jeff, why do I need to draw near to God if I'm a Christian? Isn't God already near? Yes. That's the reason you can draw near. God has already saved you. You're already in a marital covenant with him. And when you turn from God, do you know where he is? Right behind you. Right behind you, he's just going to keep following you, keep pursuing you, keep chasing you. He's not standing aloof from you. He's waiting for you to turn back and restore intimacy in the relationship, fellowship in the relationship. It is because God has a covenant with you that you have the ability to draw near to him. But the intimacy of our relationship with God is contingent on our repentance. If you feel distant from God, it could be because you are not repenting and not drawing near to him. And so, we have to confess our sin. That's really what it means to turn back to God and say, God, I agree with you. This is a big problem. And God, I agree that it's a big problem to you and it is offensive to you and I'm sorry. Against you have I sinned, God. It might have hurt that other person what I did, but ultimately it's against you. And look at the beautiful promise. When you draw near to God, what does he do? He draws near you. He's right there. He is eager to restore the intimacy of the relationship. That's what it means to cleanse yourself. It's another image of confession. Purifying your heart, it means, God, I have desires that I know are evil and against you, and I confess them and reject them. And the the beautiful promise, right? First John, we confess our sins. He's faithful to do what? To cleanse us of unrighteousness. And, And then, and again, these aren't steps. These are aspects of repentance. But if we're doing this, there should be appropriate grief over sin. 
Just like if we deeply hurt someone in a relationship and we go, oh, man, that's my fault. We, and it is a gift of God's grace, should be able to grieve our sin against God. Have you grieved sin against God? Have you been cut to the quick and said, my gosh, God, I am ignoring you. I am rejecting you. It is a mercy of God when that happens. I think we need to pray for that. Because apart from God's spirit, we are just not sensitive enough to God's will and God's ways where we would actually have that thing break our heart, right? I know guys who will cry about a football team losing. I know guys, I know a guy who started to cry when he gave up pot. And he said, that's why I knew I had to give it up because I was crying because I loved it so much. So that's a good reason to give it up right there. But can we weep over our sin. I I pray that we would pray for that ability because it's God sensitizing us to evil. So we submit, we resist, we confess, we mourn. Here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to stay in a place of guilt or shame. What does God do when we humble ourselves like that? What does he do? He exalts us. He showers us with his love and grace and favor and provides everything we need and shows us how good he is. Here's the point, family, and here's where I'll end. And if you want to be free of sin, you have to understand repentance is not fundamentally turning from bad behavior to good behavior. It's turning from idols to God. You see the difference? Some of you have a besetting sin in your life and you want to stop doing it, and just slapping your hand saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, I need to do something different. You're not getting to the root issue. You are not pulling that weed out by the root. You have to realize that your sin is Godward, so your repentance needs to be Godward. And when you sin, it's going back to God and doing business with him. Because only he can provide the grace and cleansing and restoration you need. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That image of being wretched and mourning, I think of Jesus' parable in Luke 18 of the tax collector and the sinner, right? And the tax collector won't even approach God. He beats his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This isn't about anyone else's issue, God. This is about me and my offense against you. And Jesus says, that man went away, what? Justified, declared right in God's sight. When we humble ourselves, we are vindicated. That's the good news of the gospel. And as believers, when we humble ourselves, we are restored to the joy of fellowship. And so I'd invite you to pray with me now, and I just want to lead you in a prayer of of silent confession. And, And just think about an area where you realize you have been worldly in your thinking. And you need to bring it before God. I think you would say something like this. God, I I see that my sin is against you. And God, I have ignored your will and ways. And so, Lord, I am sorry. I place myself beneath your authority. Lord, I reject that way of thinking and living. God, I confess that you are right in your judgment against me. And God, that I have betrayed you. 
I ask for your cleansing, Lord. I am grieved over my sin. Lord, I thank you that your arms are always open, that you are always eagerly awaiting my return. Thank you that your grace is always more, always greater. And Lord, that you always welcome me back with joy and delight. God, restore to me the joy of salvation and cleanse me and make me the person you want me to be. Amen.